Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small, a podcast about brand development, entrepreneurship, and innovation in the modern world. In this episode, I'm joined by Nick Stone of Bluestone Lane, a renowned Australian-inspired coffee and cafe experience brought to the United States. When I lived in LA last year, I always went to Bluestone Lane before going into the office. I'm a huge fan, and I'm excited to share Nick's story. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small. Today, I'm joined by Nick Stone of Bluestone Lane. Nick, thank you so much for joining me today. Cameron, thank you. Uh, glad to be on and looking forward to the chat. Of course. Before we get started, I, I must say, um, when I, I lived in LA last year, and right next to my office where I worked was a Bluestone Lane. And I went in there almost every day before I would go into the office, like two hours before, I would grind out some work, get ready for the, uh, the work day, and enjoy a hot chocolate. So <laughs> I'm a huge fan. Oh, great. Whereabouts? Which uh, location? Or where, where were you located? S- Yep, so that was on uh, Wilshire and um, San Vicente. Yeah, no, well, so you're at probably a, a Brentwood location. Brentwood, yep. Yeah, that's a nice-looking store, actually, a bit of a tranquil environment, nice way to start the day. and that's uh, Definitely. That's why we created this company, to provide you those sort of moments, uh, that reprieve, that, that, uh, that daily escape where you could come in, get yourself ready, and then head off to work or, or to the gym or home or whatever whatever's on your day. I love it. Incredible. Well, yeah, to flashback then, let's get started with uh, your upbringing. I'm curious, uh, where did you grow up and what would you say your childhood was like? I grew up in Melbourne, Australia. I had a great childhood. I had one sibling, my brother Andrew, uh, who I work, have the fortune of working uh, work with at Bluestone Lane. Mm. I grew up in a suburb, close to the water, the, um, the bay that is in Melbourne. And yeah, played a lot of sport, um, had lots of friends, love socializing, love exploring, love adventures. Uh, so uh, really wonderful parents. So um, yeah, you know, I was v- very, very fortunate to, to grow up in Australia. I think it, it is such an extraordinary com- uh, country and yep. Melbourne in particular, one of the most livable, if not the most livable cities in the world. So mm. sporting obsessed, culinary, hospitality obsessed, arts obsessed. So really sort of great melting pot to learn and, and uh, try different things. Amazing. I'd love to hear about some of your interests and aspirations at that young age. I saw you were very involved with football. If you can kind of elaborate on that and what led to that interest. Yeah, I played a lot of Australian rules football growing up. Uh, my family, I had my, an uncle who played professionally and my father was a very good player and my grandfather. So it was in the DNA and, and I grew up watching a lot of footy and playing obsessively. And uh, yeah, I, I guess I probably in my late teens realized that maybe there's a chance that I could make it professionally. I was never a certainty, but uh, in my last year of high school, I ended up being selected in the National um, Australian Football League draft, and I ended up playing uh, six seasons professionally, so from the age of 17 to 23, so you you get drafted typically in high school, you don't go through a college feeder system, and uh, three teams, two years at each, very much a journeyman, but fortunately all teams were in Melbourne, which is a which is an interesting thing. Um, Australian rules football in, uh, is the indigenous football code, the most popular code, uh, the most heavily attended, mm. uh, and very lucky to to stay in Melbourne instead of sort of 
relocate. So um, yeah. had I didn't have any disruption with my study. I went to university at the same time. Wow. And uh, yeah, that was my first career. So that was that started at 17, finished at 23. That's incredible. How did you keep that um, determination to go through the university at that time? And were those classes in person at all while you were traveling? Or what did that look like? Yeah, yeah. No, I, so I studied part-time six years. Okay. So finished my degree um, just as my final contract was being uh, was elected to not be renewed. Mm. So, um, you know, it was it was incredible. And the transferable skills from playing professional sport are extraordinary at such a young age too. So mm. playing in front of 50, 60, 80,000 people, um, living out your childhood dream, dealing, uh, walking from school into suddenly a professional environment. Mm. I, the, the legal driving age in Australia is 18. So I got drafted and I didn't have a car. I didn't have my license. So my father dropped me off to training and suddenly <laughs> you're training with your heroes. Wow. Uh, you know, it was just uh, extraordinary to, to learn about how to find a next level, how to improve that continuous improvement improvement mentality, uh, innovation, resilience. Uh, it's, it was just extraordinary, so formative. And mm. those, those skills and those values have really translated well into the next two careers I've had, including the one right now as founder and CEO of Bluestone. So, yeah, uh, you know, I've always juggled a couple of uh, things at, 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 uh, at the same time. So yeah. I played AFL football, went to uni. Then when I was uh, a banker, I, was, I went to postgraduate, did my master's, then started my MBA. And then I was working in banking in New York and I started Bluestone on the side. So I think I've wow. just always been interested in, in juggling and trying my best and keeping busy. Yeah, yeah it was fun. I would love to hear through the progression of once you, you were done with soccer or football at this time and then uh, going to grad school, what were some of your aspirations to get into? You said you mentioned baking. Is that what you wanted to do prior to becoming an entrepreneur, for example? Yeah, I was really interested in working overseas and I thought mm -hmm. working in financial services in the financial markets uh, provides you that opportunity. And I was always quite enamored with working in New York or working in London, Hong Kong. Uh, I'd had the chance to visit the UK on a, on a cricket tour actually when I was at school. Mm. And I just love being in these larger cities um, and obviously, you know, a lot of Australians have this scratch about, oh, sorry, this itch to scratch uh, because Australia is geographically so far south, mm. it, it, it's just part of your DNA. It's almost a, a right you have to, to go in and chance your arm with the world and explore and I just always thought that wouldn't it be an amazing thing to be able to work overseas, live in a foreign place, experience all of these different different yep. uh, cultures and activities that come with a new environment. So that uh, banking for me, I, I was really interested in with because the sophistication and insights and the diversity with the different companies you'd be working with, you mm. get to work overseas, and then you know the compensation's good. You, you know if you do a good job, then you. You learn enough to provide for your family and, and yep. have opportunities to holiday and things like that. So it's yep. sort of just, uh, I didn't really, I had an uncle that worked in financial services, but the rest of my family were not, were not bankers or accountants. They, they were, uh, they're all primarily in small business, um, either in um, development or construction development or in professional services or, uh, um, you know, my grandfather was a butcher. And my other grandfather was in retail and then in sales. So wow. it just just a 
you know, I, I, but my uncle was definitely had an influence on me at a young age that he had moved from Melbourne to live in Sydney. And yeah, I always just mm. thought that this could be a really great career choice. Amazing. So you mentioned uh, Bluestone was kind of like in this realm of while you're banking as well. I'm curious, what got you fascinated with like coffee? Was that where you high caffeine intake because of your job? What was that like to get into that adventure? <laughs> well, I had no background in coffee. I was a complete outsider. Mm. I had very limited knowledge about how to make a great coffee and the process that goes into it and the discipline. Uh, however, when I moved to the US, I was just so shocked by a couple of things. Firstly, that the consumption level is so high mm. and uh, that there was so much success with Starbucks, a, a brand that had failed in Australia, that had tried to enter Australia and was unsuccessful. Mm. And in Australia, it's the land of independence. There's no Starbucks or Duncan or Pete's or Tim Hortons. Yep. It's an independent driven model. And we drink espresso coffee and we have fantastic healthy and interesting food made to order food not mm. things that come come in frozen in a modified atmospheric packaging plastic yeah. bag that you got to put in a microwave or a speed oven to, to be edible <laughs> but you know i just thought uh when i was studying uh and that was sort of the that was the precursor before i i, I was transferred with the bank i was working with in melbourne mm. um you know, I was, I was, I had a MIPV on Starbucks, and I just couldn't believe it was worth ninety billion, and had such a tremendous market share, and had an extraordinary growth rate. I think at that time, back in two thousand and ten, Starbucks probably had about twenty thousand stores, and maybe eighteen thousand stores, and yeah. now they're talking like thirty five thousand stores. So, mm -hmm. the growth back then was phenomenal, but it's just continued to accelerate, particularly with the push into China. Mm -hmm. So, I just, I just thought there must be more people like me that are interested in high quality not just coffee and food, but really interested in great hospitality and service where mm. you walk in and they and the proprietor knows your name, face and order. And I could see that in class fitness. I could see it in uh, the be beauty industry with um, uh, beauticians and uh, where people get their manic manicures and pedicures and obviously a relationship you have with your barber and hairdresser and yeah, uh, the local bar, but I couldn't believe that coffee was seen as as really transactional, uh, product led, mm. and and I know Starbucks sort of started off being about hospitality focus, particularly coming from the Italian influence, but yep. that was not their play to scale. Uh, so that really piqued my interest, and it was through that lens of customer centricity, like what the, what what's the need I'm trying to solve for for myself, yeah. and for at that stage my my girlfriend, now wife, and that's what, uh, that's how it evolved. I love it. Um, so yeah, with a organization, so, um, say experience focused, not, I mean, sell products, but it's really around the experience that kind of ignited this. Where did you look, um, for that first brick and mortar? I know New York, of course, but why New York as well? When you're first starting. Yeah. So I, I was living in New York Yeah. and I guess it gave me the, the opportunity to not only evaluate the competitive landscape and the real estate opportunities, yeah. but living in New York and being exposed to the cosmopolitan nature, the multiculturalism, the diversity of industry, the capital of commerce and fashion and art, it just gives you this unfair advantage that if you've developed some, something that's special, you're basically leveraging the biggest brand the world's ever known, NYC. 
Yeah. So if you validated it there, it just gave me enormous confidence that, you know, I could potentially scale outside. But in those first couple of years, you know, you just focused on sort of product market fit. And for me, I was working on Park Avenue in the JP Morgan building. <laughs> and I thought that, that there has to be, I have to have my daily escape um, where uh, we would go as a team and set up our day, talk about what happened yesterday or last night or what have you. And then we'd go again in the afternoon because sometimes yeah. we wouldn't know what time we'd go home. Like we might have to work really late, might have calls late, might have the, the client give you their feedback at 6 p.m. and they need it the next morning. So, <laughs> you know, I think those daily rituals were so important and they were really built around social moments. Yeah. It wasn't really that I needed another coffee in the afternoon. It was just socially like, that's what we did to break up the day and connect. And yep. that is really our true north. Like that, that is what we're about at Bluestone. We're about really making a difference to a local's day. We're about human connection and facilitating that. Uh, in Australia, because of this sophistication in, in the coffee culture, mm -hmm. having great coffee is, is a ticket to participate. It's not a strategy to win. Yeah. To really differentiate in Australia, you need to develop and incubate and um, really, really continue to invest in localized relationships. Mm. You do not want customers. You want locals where you know their name, face, and order, where you have this real connection that's intangible that goes beyond providing them great coffee. Yeah. So that's where I really felt myself. Like I was walking into certain establishments, chain establishments in the coffee space, and they, didn't, they weren't really interested. They weren't remembering me. They weren't interested in, in really uh, formulating a relationship. Yeah. They were very much focused on getting this product out as fast as possible with the least amount of friction. And it's mm. been an extraordinarily successful strategy. Mm. But I thought, you know, I'm going to bring something that's more authentic and what I really miss and what I really love about the, the country I'm from. Mm. And I just had this hunch that there must be some more people like me. And yeah. if not... There's, there's probably enough Australians in New York and Australian tourists that could frequent it to give it a chance to be successful, yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Um, so I, I'm curious, I'm sure the listeners are as well, this part of the story of the transition from banking and then fully going into Bluestone. What does that transition look like, especially like financially? How did you actually launch the store? Were you working at the bank still? What did that look like, that transition? Yeah, well, you know, I'm a big believer of... Uh, staying in the game and iterating. So new ideas, uh, I'm not a big fan of uh, fail fast, fail early. I, I'm thinking more about, you know, staying in persistence mm. because over time you get you get chances. You get chances to evolve um, and iterate and prototype and learn. So for me with Bluestone, I, I guess I never really thought that I would leave banking. I thought that, you know, this is a, a side experiment. This is just going to be you know, like a really, I think something is going to bring me enormous intrinsic reward and gratification. I don't know if it's going to generate a great return, but yeah. I'd managed a lot of the downside. I had, I had that financial acumen to be really sure about uh, cost, cost control and mm -hmm. how much invested capital I was going to put in. Um, but, you know, I think that, that if I even went full-time at the start, like I, I probably wasn't the right leader to be full-time because of just the nature of my personality and probably how hard I pushed the brand. It needed yeah. to have time. It needed to to crawl before it walked, let alone run. And yeah. uh, so I thought the best way to do this is to stay in banking, speak very candidly with my uh, manager, my boss, to get him to understand it and 
um, support it and know that I won't compromise my banking role and the responsibilities I have there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I, it worked out really well because there was no financial pe- pressure on the business. You know, I was able to continue to earn an income and meet my, you know, my family's requirements mm-hmm. and uh, let the business just flourish. And so I actually didn't leave banking until we had 12 locations. Wow. And at that time, it was probably a little bit too much. My boss did come to me and say, listen, we're, we're at a bit of an inflection point here. You either got to jump in or jump out. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was a pretty honest chat and he was spot on. And uh, um, he's been a great mentor as well. I, I was so fortunate in my entire banking career to have wonderful, mm. uh, wonderful line managers and bosses. So. Um, then I went full time in the middle of 2016. So we'd already been operating for three years. Wow. And um, at that stage, uh, yeah, you know, the compensation was going to be a lot less, but it was enough to survive yeah. and it was enough to pay the rent in New York City. So it was just a, it was a sensible balance. And I think just uh, looking back at it now, like it was probably a professionally mature decision that I got right. And, yeah. you know, you can, you can add an enormous amount of distraction to your business idea if, if personally, like your financial situation is adding a whole lot of other stress, like yep. you, you're not going to have the clarity of thought and you're not going to have um, the ability to sort of uh, solve real business challenges if your personal life is spiraling out of control or you've got pressure from your partner or you feel yep. like you're not, you can't pay the rent or pay your credit card bill. So For sure. it worked out really well. And um, I'm a big fan of like proving the concept and, you know, challenging the value proposition without going all in like I just these big bets and putting your life on hold like I had a great career in banking and yep. I wasn't necessarily going to just jump out for something that that has some momentum I think I needed to get to critical mass before I decide yeah like let's let's make a switch here and change mm. and that's the that was the right decision and so for three years it was a juggle but as I said like I had that experience previously of going yeah. to university while being a professional sportsman and then going to university while I was working in banking and finance. So it worked out well. Wow. Yeah, I must say that's a very impressive balance, first of all. And then leading up to this next question is, um, so logistically, you didn't really have much experience, you said, in coffee itself, but where were you sourcing? I'm not sure if this changed or evolved as you got more locations, but sourcing products themselves. Yeah, well, um, you know, what's really interesting and what was a huge advantage was the fact that I was an outsider to the industry because it gives you this um, liberation around ideas and you are not uh, influenced by precedent that or, or rules that you were told that you must follow this way. You can look at it through, an obs- which the way I did was through an obsessive customer-centric lens. So mm. I had this sort of financial acumen and experience there working with a lot of companies, but then just this customer centricity and that's what I was trying to solve. That was the problem. It was it was the experience that was inconsistent with what I was used to in Australia and what I thought was 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 really terrific. So um, you know, as it relates to like learning about the business and then, you know, sourcing products and putting it all together, it's just about asking questions and iterations. And the thing that I really was confident about was the taste profile, like what I wanted the coffee to taste like, and I needed it to work really well with milk because the vast majority of coffee drinkers or espresso coffee drinkers mm. have some form of milk, whether dairy or non-dairy, and whether it's a lot of milk, like a latte, or a little bit of milk, like a macchiato, they still have milk. Yeah. Same, you know. So I just was really, really focused on coffee that would blend really well with milk, and 
And really the notes I was looking for were big chocolate and hazelnut sort of notes um, and that dark roast that is not bitter, but, you know, just is really palatable. Yeah. And primarily like our beans for that profile come from South America, from Brazil, from Colombia. And then we have chance and we have chance to sort of in, put in the blend some more unique flavors just to add add a little bit more aftertaste or or um you know impression on the palate so Mm -hmm. we will often add a little bit of central american sort of guadamalan um or some african some kenyan or ethiopian coffee so yep yeah but like uh our blend uh is primarily in the beans where we've sourced primarily from uh direct relationships we have with farmers in Mm -hmm. in south america i love it talking on uh then expansion first of all just the way you were able to balance while in banking and having 12 locations is crazy. I'm, I'm curious to hear expansion strategy. Where, Region-wise, where did you look to expand and why? Uh, so primarily New York, LA. Um, where did you look for in early days? Yeah, no, uh, great question. The first geographic market we went to outside of New York was Philadelphia. Yep. And we chose that because Philly's uh, a big enough city with critical mass and it was so accessible to New York. It was the right time zone. You could get there in an hour and change on the train. You could drive there. Uh, and, you know, it, it just made a lot of sense. Our core customers working in there, there was enough, you know, enough sort of professional services buildings that where they employ young people and a lot of graduates that, uh, you know, were our focus core customers. So mm-hmm. uh, a lot of them also visit New York and, you know, then you suddenly have a time, you know, you have the chance to catch up. So, um, that was the focus, and um, after that, like expanding, we expanded to DC, and we were really focused on the Eastern Seaboard before we went to the West Coast, and we entered in San Francisco first. And hmm. San Francisco has a bit of a revered coffee culture, particularly this third, fourth wave. Yeah, blue bottles from from uh, San Francisco, and they were probably our closest peer in the coffee space. Um, obviously, Pete's from San Francisco or from the West Coast, Starbucks from the West Coast. So yep. we just thought, uh, Coffee Benatelli is from the West Coast. So we thought, why don't we enter San Francisco and really, uh, and, and you know, really make try and make an impression and try and tell people that, that uh, hey, we've got we've got something really good going on here. Yep. And we're not only do we have great coffee, but we've got great food and mm. we've got great hospitality. So, you know, straddling the coast, um, you know, it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough play. It's an exciting one, that's for sure, and it can be a real catalyst to your brand awareness and growth, but it's logistically very challenging because yeah. the tyranny of distance, three hours time zone, the labor laws are so different. Mm. Uh, and yeah, you don't you don't have as much sort of, I guess, operational synergy because mm. you could have someone who oversees parts of New York also oversees Philly because it's it's easy to get to. You can go and do it in a day without, without breaking a sweat, but... Yep. The West Coast, not possible. So we were just really confident in the value proposition. Um, we had the requisite level of capital. And we just uh, we just thought there's a lot of Aussies there too that are probably going to get around us. And they've been really the tastemakers. They introduced Bluestone to a lot of their friends. So we thought, yeah, let's uh, let's give it a go. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's exhilarating and exciting. But, um, you know, it comes with a lot of challenges, that's for sure. And, mm. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm proud we did it. But, um, you know, equally, if we didn't go to the West Coast and just continue to focus on the East Coast, the Northeast, I think that, you know, could have worked really well, too. Yep, definitely. Kind of wrapping up here slowly. I'm curious. So you have on your background right there, that's one of the locations. And then the location I've been into was actually 
attached to pretty much a skyscraper. It was at the bottom of large offices. I'm curious, physical building-wise, it's very unique locational location. What's kind of a, the inspiration behind that? Yeah, well, the location behind me in the screens uh, are Cafe in Los Altos, so in the Bay Area in Silicon Valley uh, in, in uh, Northern California. But yeah, no two bluestone lanes look the same, and we do have two two concepts, mm-hmm. very similar but um, slightly different use case. So yep. the coffee shop model is really focused on being an amenity to a building, focus on a captive audience, and that was the big play pre-COVID. We had mm. great predictability about demand. We knew people were going to fill up that office building yeah. uh, every Monday through Friday, and they were all going to drink, a lot of them were going to drink coffee or tea or hot chocolate or or come for a cold-pressed juice and they'd have avocado toast or they'd have pastry or they'd have something else. So, yep. um, you know, that was the play there and, and very much focused on very large office buildings, at least 500,000 square feet, mm. and typically over a million square feet. And then the, the other sort of use case is residential areas where we offer the larger cafes, which are more a dining experience, yep. broader menu, um, Typically, 90% of transactions are two or more people. So we've never been built around this laptop, you know, culture and hanging out in the space, or, you know, working on my laptop. We've really been about bringing people together mm. and being a catalyst to, to drive that connection. So we uh, we launched the first cafe in West Village mm-hmm. in uh, mid-2014. And, you know, that's the that's where we've continued to grow Um as, you know, since COVID, particularly in some of these commuter suburbs, yep. you know, inner, inner suburban sort of rings that um, where people used to commute in every day, but now they're only commuting in two days or three days. Yep. So um, it's great for families. It's great for big catch-ups with for a group of friends. It's great to visit after you go for a run or go to the gym or drop the kids off at school. Mm. Uh, and really that was modeled on um, those days where we would go running with my wife and we'd ca- catch up or running with my mates. Yep. And then we'd sit down and uh, have a have a flat white in a in a porcelain mug, a latte in a glass, a big brekkie with an avocado smash, and read the papers back to front. And that's you know that's really was the inspiration and just that feeling of being part of the community and great service and great atmosphere, great music. Yeah, it's just addictive. And uh, yeah, I'm really proud of what we've been able to do and scale that. And you know now we serve about eighty thousand people a week. So wow. it has resonated and. Um, you get a lot of tangibility when you're in hospitality and retail. You get feedback on the spot. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you get enormous reward when it goes well and people tell you and you see it with your own eyes. That's incredible. Well, I'd like to conclude each episode with this. Um, if you can share one piece of advice with an aspiring entrepreneur, maybe something you've learned or regret along the way, what would you say that would be? Yeah, no, I, I think that's, that's a great question. And i mm-hmm. uh, probably got a few different answers. But what I always get asked about is that people – People that are chasing an idea and um, they always get concerned about the competition. They get concerned about sharing it. They want to keep it very secretive, like, you yeah. know, they, they crack the code to, to you know, solving something that no one else has worked out. And, and the reality is, like, um, that sort of no one owns a good idea, execution is everything. And, in fact, like, Reid Hoffman sort of set a derivation of that. And that's really helped me, like... Yeah, lots of people have great ideas about building businesses or building a coffee company and having better quality coffee and focused around service. But execution is everything. So yeah. I don't think it's really about the the art of the or the originality of the idea. Most ideas are just iterations of, of something that's already been done before. Mm-hmm. But the execution is what sets people apart. And the execution, in the case of hospitality, which has limited you know, intellectual property other than your culture, which is really your people, 
Yeah. Um, it's how the team uh, interacts. It's how they are so selfless to make sure that our locals come in and have a great time. So, you know, that would be my piece of advice. Don't get too caught up with the idea. Like everything's about execution and that's where the rubber hits the road and you learn whether you've got a real business or not. Mm-hmm. And there's plenty of silly ideas that are executed really well and become amazing businesses. Amazing. Well, Nick, thank you so much for joining me today. And to the listeners out there, make sure to check out Bluestone Lane at bluestonelane.com. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Starting Small. If you would, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, follow Starting Small on social platforms and make sure to subscribe to our email so you don't miss anything on Starting Small Summit, more podcast episodes, or our online blog. You can find that link in this description.